Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the usual air quality. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, or IAQ Radio. My name is Cliff Slotnicker, the Z-Man, and here with me in Studio B in Coriopolis, Pennsylvania, sitting in for our co-host, Radio Joe Hughes, is Bill Wagon and our cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick. Hey, yep. Bill. Hey, how are everybody today? Good. How's Zach? And I am fine today. Good. And on the phone with us is our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wiles. Good morning, Dieter. How are you? Just fine. Good morning. Uh, it's afternoon, particularly in Pittsburgh. <laughs> okay, you can contact me at cliffzlotnick at unsmoked.com. You can contact Radio Joe Hughes by emailing to him at joe.use at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments include the microband trivia quiz, We'll be speaking with Bill Beagle of Beagle Enterprises, a huge disaster restoration firm in the Washington, D.C. area, and talking to them about a unique job. And we'll be talking to mycologist Herb Lehman with U.S. Micro Solutions. Cliff, we'd like to thank today's sponsors, Indoor Environmental Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions. That's dry-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. The Restoration Forum at restorationforum.com. And, of course, Microband Systems, the microbial management company, at microband.com. To contact the show live by phone or text message, simply go to www.talkshoe.com, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com, and follow the instructions to obtain a PIN number. Our show ID number is 1547. We appreciate suggestions. We'll answer questions and take requests if you will email us at info at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, Please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. And now I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for the microband trivia question. Microband trivia questions for Friday, March 30th, 2007. This week we'll have two questions which are somehow related to our guests. The first question is which director of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency also served as an acting FBI director? I'll repeat the question. Which director of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency also served as an acting FBI director? The second question How did the ancient Chinese immunize people against smallpox? How did the ancient Chinese 
immunize people against smallpox. No one was successful in answering last week's trivia questions. We invite our listeners to listen to past shows. Not only will you obtain much useful information, we invite you to try and be the first to answer the microband trivia questions to win some cool microband gear. Well, that's the water is the rock, baby. You know the rain is falling it down. Well, that's the water is the rock, baby. You know the rain is falling down. Oh, it is your father to be living in the dough falling down. The month of June 2006 yielded historic rainfalls amounts in the greater Washington, D.C. area. The weekend of June 24th was especially bad, and flash flooding quickly overwhelmed the sewers and drainage systems throughout the city and surrounding areas. Residential, commercial, and government buildings began to take on water at an alarming rate. One of these buildings was the headquarters of the Environmental Protection Agency, located at 13. 50 Constitution Avenue, Northwest, Washington, D.C. Bill Beagle is the founder and president of Beagle Enterprises Incorporated, a fire and water damage restoration firm based in Rockville, Maryland. Prior to starting Beagle Enterprises, Bill was director of operations for his family's dry cleaning business. In 1999, with over 15 years' experience in the fabric care and dry cleaning industry, Bill decided to take both positive and negative lessons learned while working at a restoration firm in Los Angeles, coupled with experiences as a third-generation dry cleaner, and began assisting people and businesses on the path to recovery after floods and fires. In 2004 and 2005, he led major projects and teams of up to 150 people in Tampa, New Orleans, Miami, after Hurricanes Charlie, Francis, Jean, Katrina, and Wilma. Beagle Enterprises specializes in assisting after major catastrophic events in the hospitality, healthcare, and office and real estate industries. Bill's an active member of the DC Entrepreneurs Organization. He serves on numerous charitable boards and foundations. He's also an active international courier of bone marrow for the Gift of Life Bone Marrow Foundation. Bill is married to his business and life partner, Ronit. Together, they have a Maltese named Bubka. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Bill, I was looking at your website, and on it, it said that we don't use industry standards. Our standards set an example for the industry. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a little tongue-in-cheek. Of course, I have to follow certain industry standards, but by not being a franchise by not having to listen to anybody else's rules. I have the ability to set our own destiny, and I'd like to think that our standards are exceed and maybe in some instances set industry standard. We, we like to do things our way, the Beagle way. We don't like to take direction from anyone in particular, and we want to make sure that we're doing what's really in our clients' best interests. Let's go back to this summer, uh, 2006. How big was the building in question? How many square feet were affected by water the in this EPA building? square feet, just under 100,000. We wound up dealing with almost a million cubic feet of damaged space. Bill, what's, uh, I'm sure working in Washington, D.C. In, in this type of building, you, you face some unique challenges. Uh, what kind of water was it, and, and how long did it take your crews to respond? We received the phone call approximately midnight, uh, Sunday night. Uh, that weekend yielded 
anywhere from 9 to 12 inches of rain within the uh, D.C. metropolitan region. I navigated downtown uh, through anywhere from 6 inches up to 18 or 24 inches of standing water in varying intersections and streets. Uh, enter the building, which encompasses an entire city block in length, not necessarily width, and found that there was water as high as 24 to 36 inches in varying areas. How did you get the job, Bill? Were you, did you have a uh, document in place that they would call you or relationships or had you worked with people before? It was a a, a past, a former client who at that point ran a large shopping mall who left that, that employment and was now working as the engineer on duty for this federal building. What, what structural materials might have been involved with that, and, and did you have electrical power? How was the electrical power supply? The, it was mostly building material that was affected. It was drywall. Every wall inside, in, including interior walls, they were all insulated. So lots of insulation, lots of drywall, some plaster, uh, VCT or vinyl flooring, but they called it marmoleum since it uh, resembled orange marble. And uh, some ceiling tiles. That that was the basic building material. As far as uh, there was also some contents that were affected, systems, furniture. As far as electricity, uh, you're dealing with an older federal building, so we we did have some concerns with appropriate power for our equipment and our restoration efforts. What kind of equipment was used to remove the most of the water from the building? Most of the water was removed with portable extraction equipment. Uh, and from that point, it went on to a muck out of all the sludge and debris that was uh, that remained. Speaking of debris, do you have any idea of the amount of building material that you had to remove uh, you know, from the building? Did it fill a dumpster? Did it fill a garbage truck? It, uh, it, it filled a few dumpsters. Uh, within uh, the three-week period of time, we took out approximately 72, 72 tons of debris. Wow. How how did your prompt service prevent IAQ problems from occurring in the well, building? We isolated uh, the area, which was the entire basement of the EPA headquarters. It included the cafeteria and tons of different offices. By isolating and minimizing the amount of foot traffic, uh, as well as the airflow, we prevented cross-contamination. Uh, we used a tremendous amount of negative air from desiccant dehumidifiers, as well as uh, at least 80, maybe 90 portable uh, air scrubbers that we brought on site and vented most of them outside to create negative air and to prevent any cross-contamination. How long did it take you to get the large desiccant dehumidifiers on site? Uh, within 24 hours, we had desiccants on site, and they were hooked up and strung and powered up. What lessons did you learn from this project which might help you on future projects? Me and anyone, for that matter. Um, one, dealing with the government is dealing with a very, very special entity, and they have their own way of doing things. Regardless of my expertise or some of the people that I had with me, they weren't as concerned with what I showed them or explained to them could have been catastrophic or large concerns. They have their own way of doing business, and you had to 
within reason, conform to what they expect. There was a tremendous amount of inability to get decisions made, not always talking to the right people, not having the right people present at meetings. Uh, I just wasn't dealing with the GSA. I was dealing with the tenant of the building, the EPA. And then there were varying other parts of the government that would chime in. Lots of chiefs, not enough Indians, not enough people that could really make a decision instantaneously to allow me to do what I needed to do. You know, speaking of chiefs and Indians, who prepared the work protocol for you? Did you do this yourself? Did you hire an indoor environmental professional? Did the agency or did the building tell you what they wanted you to do? We walked through uh, one of the real treats of doing this project for my company is we were in the basement of the building that doesn't regulate but oversees and has their finger on the pulse of what our entire industry does. So when one of their hygienists walked through initially, I was dealing with the best of the best, people that really know what they were looking for. EPA did give us some direction. Uh, we have enough experience. We have lots of experience in dealing with these types of muckouts and cleanouts and re large remediation projects. So I knew what we wanted to do, but I needed someone else to sign off to make sure that the protocol that we came up with jointly was acceptable and to their satisfaction. If you had the chance to do this job over again, um, what would you do differently? Uh, I would have created, I wouldn't have done anything differently from a logistical or technical point of view. I would have created a burn sheet uh, daily or weekly and would have asked for some compensation and monies up front to uh, soften the blow on the backside. Uh, speaking of money, have you been paid yet? We have not been paid yet, but thank you for asking. <laughs> uh, they're very happy with the work we did. Uh, we ran crews of 40 people, 12-hour shifts around the clock for over two weeks, probably two and a half weeks, to get the building demoed, cleaned, and ready for rebuild. And I believe amongst the four federal buildings that were damaged, we were the first one to get to that stage. Do you have an estimated value of the savings that, you, that you've created by your response on this project? I can't give you a finite number. I can only think that if we ran double shifts, uh, and I don't know the severity of the damage in some of the other buildings, but we were dealing with workspace. Hundreds of people worked in this area. Uh, the cafeteria for two buildings was in this space. I can only think it was many millions of dollars. Uh, I also know that the rebuild did not go as quickly as they had initially wanted it to go or they anticipated it would have taken. You know, working in D.C., I've traveled there, but it must be logistically challenging. That's, you know, where did you park, that's where, did nice you park your, where, where did you park your vehicles, or can you comment on that? No, I, I, I can and I will. Uh, we, since part of the building was closed, we did have access to part of the underground space, which is shared with the Ronald Reagan building. So if you've ever attended a fundraiser charitable event, you enter the same way uh, as if you were going to the Ronald Reagan building. But it is a very secure space. So employees need to be checked in and checked out every day. They need to be signed in. They need to go through metal detectors. It's not easy taking testing equipment, 
protometers or thermal dig, uh, thermal cameras through x-ray equipment and explaining day in <laughs> and day out <laughs> why do you have this probe with spikes on the end of it and why uh why do you have this funky yellow camera that takes pictures of uh temperature uh my dumpster my trash contractor had to get each bin uh x-rayed at the navy yard about a four or five mile distance away before he could bring an empty bin onto the property uh, parking was extremely challenging. We're still fighting and paying uh, attention to the parking tickets that we received. <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, you provide to them via email or uh, newspaper that the governor, not the governor, the mayor rather, declared it a state of emergency. We're parking, doing emergency work. Uh, all of our trucks are lettered. All of our trucks have laminated uh, paperwork that says emergency service being performed, do not ticket or tow. Well, the meter maid doesn't necessarily see that. We had an entire block of Constitution Avenue taken up with trailer-mounted desiccant dehumidification equipment. July 4th came, and we are literally half a block from the Washington Monument. So I had police officers, D.C. police officers, telling us, you have to move these trailers out of the way, or we're going to tow them. And it, I, I, had a, I had an armed guard with me that day. It was interesting. I worked my way up the ladder and finally found someone who understood what we were doing. All of a sudden, it's sunny and 80 degrees outside. No one remembers that it rained a dozen inches two weeks before. So they wound up not disconnecting our equipment. They wound up not towing it off-site. But uh, there were a few uh, hot moments that morning. It was also challenging to try to get a diesel fuel fuel delivery delivery the day of the firework firework to to the mall area. area. I'm getting a little feedback now, guys. Yeah, you you may want to mute your your speakers. speakers. They're completely off. Mm -hmm. In any event, I'm talking about less. We had a very difficult time getting diesel fuel delivered to the mall area. They don't want any gas, diesel, nothing of that sort to be delivered within probably a 20 or 30 block radius of the National Fireworks on the day of the fireworks. Without that fuel, we would have had our generators and our dehumidifiers go down. But again, it was communicating with the right people to get that not to happen. Yeah, I don't know what's causing, causing the technical difficulty. I don't know. We don't know either. Were there documents affected in this uh, this building, the EPA building? There were some documents affected. Uh, the first thing that got wet that we addressed was the priceless, irreplaceable microfiche archives of the EPA. Uh, they were isolated, they were moved to a different area, they were photographed, and we were not asked. We were initially asked if we could handle it. We told them we could. We then uh, turned that over to somebody else after we isolated the microfiche and got them out of the way. Uh, there were a lot of files that are used for evidence, for court cases and other such matter. Some were wet, some were dry. Uh, the wet ones... Uh, 
EPA brought in their own people to figure out can these be destroyed or do they still need to be kept for archival and record purposes. And then a lots of other documents we simply covered and protected in place. They were on rolling filing cabinet rails and we didn't want them to get dusty or dirty throughout the process. So it was just a matter of covering them and protecting them with uh, six mil poly, but also keeping them visible so if somebody did need them or need access to them in the event of a court case coming up, they, they would at least have that access. Bill, who conducted the post-remediation verification sampling on this project, and did you have some sort of agreed clearance criteria that would be acceptable before you undertook the project? Uh, there was no agreed clearance criteria up front. Uh, I've done lots of remediation projects in hospitals and other uh, buildings of similar stature, and we didn't agree to what they wanted up front. I just told them I would get the building very, very, very clean. And what was done was the EPA actually provided their own industrial hygienists to conduct that clearance testing. So I was excited yet also a little apprehensive to be dealing with someone of that magnitude. Uh, of all the sampling that was done, I want to say we had a very high number uh, that passed on the first clearance, I want to say about 80% or so. And of those, about 95% of them came back with zero organisms present, no presence of anything. And Could I think you that just goes to the cleanliness and the, the detail that our, our crews used to remove all the bacteria. Bill, could you tell us a little bit more about the methods and maybe the products that you used to achieve this, these results? We did use microban in the beginning of our project uh, as we were wet wiping and mopping down and doing general muck out. Once all the demo was completed, we used a uh, specially made tack wipe from a company in Ohio called BioGuard. They make this tack wipe. It's just uh, lightly sticky enough to remove any residue and it's very helpful in getting dust and uh, junk out of tight spaces. After that was done, uh, of course, we also used the HEPAVAC. Don't want to leave that out. We HEPAVAC in between each process of physical wiping. We then used a pre-treated alcohol wipe and that alcohol wipe allowed us not to bring additional moisture into the building as we're trying to get the building as dry as possible. Uh, again, you can get underneath seat channels and behind door frames with that alcohol wipe. It was sturdy enough and wouldn't rip apart. And then we fogged with a, with a completely inert uh, mix of chemicals. The basic ingredient is peroxide. There are a few other, quote-unquote, secret ingredients that go into it, but uh, the, major, the major substance is peroxide, and it allowed for anything that was organic to be completely consumed and uh, gotten rid of. Bill, what we, well, I know that you received the Restoration Industry Association Phoenix Award for the project, and I just happened to be there when you had received the award, which was the reason why... I approached you and asked you to uh, do this interview with us. Could we talk a little bit about 
you know, that award. Have Absolutely. you ever looked at Okay. What's the inscription say that's on it? The inscription states uh, innovation it, it was awarded to our company for innovation in restoration. Mm-hmm. And it's called the Phoenix Award after the mythical bird that rises from the ashes. And it's presented by the Restoration Industry Association. And I understand, I understand that um, this, is, this was the project of the year that many companies competed from this, uh, for this award from all over the world, that the panel of judges is secret. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I'm a past president of the RIA, and I have no idea uh, you know, who the judges are. But uh, you know, they went through a series of the projects. I was hoping uh, that, you could tell me who the judges were. I was like, I'd uh, like to send them some golf uh, balls, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea, but it's just, uh, you know, it's really overwhelming. And, you know, companies such as, you know, Roland uh, has won one. Uh, Belfour has won one in the past. Uh, Joe Arrigo has won one. Uh, you're in very, very good company. Uh, you know, this was a, a phenomenal project, a phenomenal achievement, and uh, it's something that you should be very, very proud of accomplishing. Not just me, my entire staff. Uh, and it's always the people behind the scenes that don't necessarily get the accolade or the, or the credit. It's it's my back office that allows the the crews and the techs to be out doing what they do so then you can keep track and bill and hopefully one day get paid for a project like this. I consider ourselves very fortunate because uh, last year's Phoenix Award winner was a large building in downtown Miami that had uh, about a thousand panes of glass broken out of it. It was won by Roland Construction, right. also out of Rockville, Maryland. Uh, I happen to be involved in that project as well. So uh, I consider myself fortunate to be exposed now to two different Phoenix Awards. Now you just have to three-peat. Well, yeah, that's, I, uh, that's it. We, we we just want to keep the Phoenix Award in the 20852 zip code. We'll be happy with that. No problem. What we'd like you to do is please uh, hang on the line. We'd like to do a roundtable. If you can join us at, at the end, we'll bring on Dieter and we'll bring on our second guest. Certainly. Okay, perfect. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, CJ. Uh, it's my pleasure and, and honor, really, to uh, to introduce Herb Lehman. Um, I didn't realize till just today, but uh, Herb and I have some things in common, um, even more than we thought. And Herb's responsible for making me a Mold fan. For those of you who hadn't had the pleasure of um, seeing Herb doing some teaching, 
It's one of the questions he, he always asks in the beginning of his uh, presentation. But Herb Lehman has a, a BS degree from Juniana College and did graduate work in genetics and microbiology at West Virginia University and the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. And Herb served as a chief microbiologist and head bacteriologist at hospitals in Pennsylvania and Delaware. He supervised microbial labs in the private sector. Herb was an instructor in microbiology at La Roche College, clinical assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh Dental School, at the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health, and was an instructor of microbiology in the School of Medical Technology at Montefiore Hospital. Herb is president and technical director of U.S. Microsolutions Incorporated in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, an environmental microbiology laboratory specializing in monitoring biocontamination of the indoor environment. Herb formulates sampling protocols, recommends remedial measures for eliminating microbial contamination of indoor environments, and teaches advanced indoor air quality investigation courses to indoor environmentalists. U.S. Microsolutions Laboratory is MLAP, accredited by the AIHA. Those are the acronyms, and here comes the acronym police. Herb, how are you today? Fine. What's AIHA before we go forward because the acronym police is are here? Well, it's an organization called the American Industrial Hygiene Association. That's our organizational body that accredits uh, not only microbiology labs but other but industrial hygiene labs involved in other types of analyses of the uh, of the environment. Herb, what, what's a mycologist? Well, a mycologist is a person who studies uh, fungi. Uh, the myco portion of mycology means uh, it's a Greek term for mushroom, M-Y-K-E-S. It's spelled the Greek term. And it's just a study of fungi, which is a group of organisms that include the microscopic forms, which we can't see, include molds and yeast. And then, of course, the larger forms we're all familiar with that we see it in the environment, the mushrooms, smuts, the rust, the bracket, and the puffballs, which we've all uh, recognized in the forest and yards and wherever. Uh, the disease called mycosis, just a study of, of fungal disease, and the term is mycosis. Herb, with all the, I guess, interesting and maybe scary things to look at under a microscope in a hospital, what made you get interested in fungi? Well, as you know, I have some graduate work at the uh, West Virginia University, uh, and I took a mycology course under Dr. H.L. Barnett in the 60s, and he was one of the foremost mycologists of his day. And a very interesting course, and I became a mold fan. <laughs> Herb, uh, I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's your opinion of the do-it-yourself test kit sold at supermarkets and convenience stores? Well, we call it junk science. Uh, it's kind of a, it's a system where uh, it's a settling plate uh, where it can be used to swab, but you can't perform quantitative analysis. That is, you can't get a volume time where you can actually quantify the air or concentration of the air. And then uh, ultimately you get results that are very misleading since the sam most samples are always positive and additional fees are required for identification. And it's very misleading for the general public. Uh, even in the insert, there's uh, a statement that may even cause death. And of course, that's a little bit uh, paranoia there that uh, they're causing among the general public. What would you say that 
environmental microbial sampling should have a rationale, and if so, what should it be? Well, there's a few reasons for that. Uh, first of all, uh, in some cases, you need to find an amplifier. That's an area where you may not see it or smell it, and uh, it's a source of a contamination in a, in a building, and uh, uh, you're trying to detect that by some sampling protocol. Uh, another reason would be because of ocular complaints. You're familiar with the with schools uh, and other uh, structures and facilities where one or two persons may be complaining, the building manager or the principal of the school has to be proactive and has to address the complaints for legal reasons, uh, workman's comp and such. Another reason is because of legal issues. Uh, they're going to go to court with this. So you need to do sampling to prove that there is uh, fungi or bacteria there. Uh, and there's insurance issues. Uh, insurance companies want to have uh, some documentation that the mold was present, and in post-restoration uh, or mediation, they want to have what we call normal fungal ecology. Another two reasons would be hidden growth. You may have to do some simple invasive procedure to detect uh, hidden or cryptic mold. And, of course, the last one would be special considerations that you find in hospitals where you have an immunocompromised patient's and you monitor either the water or the air for that. Herb, how does viable sampling differ from other sampling methods? Well, viable sampling generally uh, involves some type of an auger plate uh, where there's an impaction in, is involved. Uh, you use a vacuum pump and you impact it onto an auger surface, and it's generally used for specific identification of a mold uh, to genus and many times species, and this is generally used in hospital situations or where you may want to have a post-remedial verification in cases where there may be some persons who have uh, medical issues involved in a building and the building manager would like to have uh, have some specific identification done. Uh, there is some delay in reporting versus a non-viable method. may require seven to ten days to get specific identification. And one thing it does detect in hospitals is what we call the opportunistic pathogens, Aspergillus, Acrimonium, and Fusarium species, which are uh, pathogens for the immunocompromised patients, such as transplantation, uh, HIV, and uh, cancer patients. Herb, a lot of the reports use a term, an abbreviation, CFU. Can you tell us what that is and well, that's why it might... That's a term for viable sampling. It's colony-forming units. Each individual colony that grows up on an auger plate is considered one colony-forming unit, and you report things in colony-forming units per cubic meter of air or colony-forming units per swab or per square inch, and uh, that designates what we call a viable or live culture uh, result. Herb, if I had some visible black mold, you know, that killer mold, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> on the sheetrock in my basement, uh, what would be the most economical way for me to determine what type of mold that might be? Well, the cheapest and most uh, rapid turnaround time would be just a tape, uh, either uh, they call them biotapes or some type of a, a clear uh, tape of the sample, put it onto a glass slide with, with a, a fungal solution, and you can ready it. Uh, note uh, hyphal fragments, fruiting structures, and spores. And in some cases, you may know if it's really viable 
if you find uh, the 3D structures and hyphal fragments. What fungi, fungi indicate that there might be a problem with an indoor environment? Or... Well, if you get what we call above the, what we call normal fungal ecology, if you get elevated levels of uh, perhaps aspergillus penicillium, which are our primary colonizers in the building, uh, there's been studies done initially years ago on uh, spore trap sampling, where if you were above 2,000 per cubic meter of air, uh, especially if it would be one uh, one type of uh, spore form, such as aspen, it would be what we call elevated or high concentrations. Or if you find stachybotrys or ketomium spores, that generally indicates a, a long-standing water event, uh, moisture intrusion, perhaps more than at least three weeks. The herb, the, the term air sample is commonly used in in the IAQ industry. What is an air sample and how do you take one and could you provide our listeners with a visible picture of what happens and what can be learned from this well, type of sampling? Generally, the air sampling can be divided into two areas. One is the viable sampling, which I mentioned, where you use a, a vacuum pump and what we call an N6 sampler and you have impaction on an auger plate and you can get what we call coniforming units per cubic meter of air. Uh, you, you test a volume of air anywhere from one to ten minutes. Uh, the other method is what we call spore traps, and there are a variety of products on the market for doing spore trap analysis, where it's a specially designed cassette, a device which you put on a vacuum pump, and again you can test for one to ten minutes, and you can have a rapid turnaround analysis because it's generally impacted on some type of a sticky cover slip, generally it's glass, and you can put that on a, a glass slide and can be readily identified uh, a spore type, and you can detect other things like pollen. You can detect skin cells, uh, particulates, uh, fiberglass, and other types of fibers. And that's considered a, a non-viable air sampling type. But generally you have to have a vacuum pump for either type of sampling, and there's a stated volume to be used and uh, for a particular time frame. Herb, when mold would be suspected in a wall or ceiling cavity, what is the least invasive method of sampling to determine what's going on inside that void space? Well, there was uh, somebody called me yesterday, one of our customers, and they had some an office uh, where there was only there was a musty smell. They couldn't see anything. And uh, what I suggested they do, take a simple uh, wall check sample where you can put a hole in the wall if the building manager okays that. You can test for a spore trap and put it in there, and you can test what we call a space within the wall between the studs and try to get your insulation away, and you're testing this very small area. You may hit a hot spot where you can get millions of spores within a 15-second to one-minute sample time uh, with a spore trap, and uh, that's least invasive, and you can get some information out of that. And there are many cases that our clients have done this, and we found some hot spots in buildings uh, they have and where there was nothing. You couldn't smell it. You couldn't see it, but you get an indication there's something going on in, in, in the wall cavity. Herb, what suggestions would you make to your IEP customers, and how do you think maybe they, they miss the boat sometimes? Well, uh, I think uh, we see some problems with sampling times, uh, inappropriate sampling, where uh, 
the, the sampling protocol is either inadequate or it's not uh, justified. And uh, they have a tendency uh, most of the time to undersample rather than oversample. And their sampling times can be so long that some of the plates are overgrown and some of the spore trap analysis is so covered with debris that our analysts can't identify the spores and you underestimate the uh, the counting. And this has happened, uh, it still happens now and it's happened in the past with sampling times for wall checks like five minutes where you should run it maybe one, one minute uh, in a very uh, contaminated area. They run five and ten minute sampling times where they should only hold that for say clean rooms and situations and issues that come up like that. Herb, following a major water intrusion or sewage intrusion like our first guest discussed, what organisms would you recommend sampling for? Well, uh, you're looking for the so-called coliforms. They're a group of organisms which are included in that group, E. coli, and that's usually the indicator of fecal contamination is in the United States anyway is E. coli. And in some cases, you can look for this gram-positive organism called enterococcus. Both enterococcus and E. coli are normal flora in the GI gut of every person in the world. So you're really looking for those two particular type of organisms because you may find other coliforms there and still consider its post-remedial verification if it's in very low numbers. But you don't want to find Escherichia coli or enterococcus. Herb, what's Legionella and where is it found? Why is it important? And really, how do you sample for that? Well, Legionella, as you know, is a gram-negative bacterium. It was, uh, it's been found in uh, many habitats of water. It can be found in uh, shower heads, uh, faucets, uh, plumbing fixtures, stagnant water lines, uh, dead-end uh, legs of water systems, hot water systems, whirlpool spas, cooling towers, and it's even been found in potting soil, one species has been found. Uh, mist machines, humidifiers, and hot springs. And it's been noted by some authorities that air conditioners are not a likely source for Legionnaire's disease. And some of the newer theories is, and expounded by a particular physician here in Pittsburgh, that you aspirate uh, Legionella from your respiratory tract, and he believes that's where how most of the uh, Legionnaire's cases occur, rather than from a bioaerosol, say from a cooling tower. Why is it important? Is it a health risk? Well, it's a it's a identifiable uh, disease by a physician. It must be treated because the mortality rate can go anywhere from five to twenty percent in untreated cases, and even higher cases in the immunocompromised patient uh, in the hospital. How do you sample for it? Or? Well, you can. It's pretty easy to sample. Uh, you, you can do uh, hot water tanks. Uh, take samples of of the tank in the in the uh, basement areas of a building. You can do swabs of faucets, uh, shower heads. You can culture uh, cooling tower water. Uh, you can just take any, where there's a water system involved, you take a sample of the water, whether it be a whirlpool spa or uh, ice machines, uh, mist machines, humidifiers, and you take a water sample or a swab sample, and it has to be sent under ice. Uh, it has to be sent under uh, low temperature conditions and put on the special media for growth. Herb, I'm a sports fan, and sometimes I, I hear this term MRSA, and I know that it's been 
bandied about a little bit with uh, with different sports, in particular football and, and some wrestling. Um, what is it, and, and how could how concerned should we be about that? Well, it's a uh, gram-positive organism called Staph aureus, and it happened to be methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. That's the term uh, MRSA, first detected in England in 1959 and seen in the United States here in the 60s, and uh, I remember culturing it in the late 60s. Uh, it's an organism that's resistant to a battery of antibiotics, and uh, the thing about it, uh, as far as its transmission, is generally not a bioaerosol. It's usually by contact. That's why people in close contact, uh, whether it be uh, a team, a basketball, football team, who in close contact, they can, they can. It's by touch and contact in the hospital. It's many times through the hands of the physicians and attending, and uh, it can be a, become a very serious disease because there's the the uh, medication protocols are very limited in, in treating the infection, especially if it's a very deep seated infection. And where do you look for it? Uh, you generally find it in the nasal cavities of people. And there's been a recent study out of Europe that they say it's most productive to culture the throat rather than the nasal passages for MRSA. You know, mold samples are used a lot in litigation. Have you ever been asked to testify in a mold case? If yeah, so, been, whose, whose side involved, were you on? I've been involved in about three cases, and, and all, all the time it was on the plaintiff's side. And, of course, the defense tries to tear up not only your credibility but your uh, any information you you have to give. Uh, particular case I was on, I testified on the length of uh, time it would take Stachybotrys to grow in an area of a bathroom where uh, these people moved in uh, a particular day, seven days later, the, the wallpaper began to peel back, and three feet up the wall they found Stachybotrys, had the people home inspector come back and photograph it, and I testified that Stachybotrys could not grow three feet up a wall in a matter of seven days. And I gave my opinion, and then they call you an expert. Well, <laughs> well, only if they pay, I guess. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> Herb, what should a lab's customer be entitled to? What do you think? Uh, what do you think these folks should should get for your services? Well, you want the best quality at a reasonable price, and that's why we have our accreditation because we are uh, supposed to be a, a lab that follows the regulations of the AIHA. Uh, many times, the industry is becoming pretty <laughs> pretty cutthroat with the low price, low ball pricing, and. In some cases, you wonder if the quality is going to diminish if the prices keep going down. But quality service at a reasonable price. And it may be able to talk to someone in the particular uh, environmental lab that you can talk to about, about the situation the cases come up and noted for doing that. Herb, is there anything you'd like to add that we missed? Anything important you'd like the listeners to know? Well, I think it, you have to have a particular, uh, when you, you're developed into a project, you you need to uh, get a sampling protocol in order, which is most appropriate without oversampling or undersampling. And as most people, uh, usually investigators need to do, is form an hypothesis to try to prove or disprove a particular hypothesis when you're going into a project. and and do the appropriate sampling protocols that will fit that particular situation. And every situation is different. And customers call us and say, hey, you know, what about this? Is there a standard for this? What's, 
you know, what guideline do we use? And uh, every individual case, I think, is a little bit different in the projects that investigators get involved in. And uh, I think it's, it's appropriate to do the proper types of uh, investigation with proper sampling and, uh, of course, send it to a lab that, uh, that does the uh, appropriate testing and uh, with the accreditation that's available. Okay. Hey, Herb, how could our listeners, uh, our growing number of listeners actually, get in contact with you? Well, we have an 877 number, 877-876-4276, or go, we have a website, and it's usmicro, U-S-M-I-C-R-O, hyphen solutions.com. That's solutions.com. Okay, Herb, could we get you to stay on the phone with us for just a few more minutes? Yes. Thank you very much. Perfect. Now we're going to bring back both of our guests and our technical director, Dieter Wiles, for a roundtable discussion. We'll start with Dieter if he's got any questions. Yeah, good morning, Herb. Good how morning. are you doing? Hey, how are you? Hi. Oh, God, I always, I always have a ton of questions. <laughs> but probably one thing that really bothers me most is any directions in standardizing methods for uh, mold samples? In other words, standardizing the agar and so on. Well, N6 uh, N6 agar sampling uh, uh, protocol is kind of the gold standard in our industry. Uh, although there's a variety of media you can use, and yeah. people want to use this type of media and that type of media, and there is a problem there with uh, with the sampling augers. Yeah, what is the most appropriate auger to use? Yeah, I talk, I mean, obviously I talk to you and I talk to other mycologists and other laboratories and at meetings. They said, oh, no, no, we don't use this auger at all. We use this one. This is much better. And I mean, obviously, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of fungi uh, uh, spores around. And, of course, some of them grow better on one than the other. There's no doubt about right. that. Just like plants, some of them need a, yeah, a, a lot of fertilizer, the other one a lot of water, and what have you. So is there anything going on uh, nationwide or through associations? I don't know of anything where they're going to standardize yeah. uh, a particular, uh, particular uh, sampling protocols. Yeah. The other thing is, and I always like that one, uh, I have an old OSHA publication where it said, you know, Below one CFUs, a thousand CFUs, uh, below a thousand is quote good, above is terrible, and you heard one thousand, you heard two thousand. Right. I just happened to have from yesterday, no, day before yesterday, the twenty eighth, the um, mold count in Pittsburgh through the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. And yesterday in Pittsburgh, in fact, on top of Allegheny General Hospital, we had a mold count of 11,217. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's starting to increase. We had a count outside our lab of 18,000 yep. last Wednesday because we, uh, we have to do a sampling in our laboratory as well as doing an outside sure. sample. 
So uh, you'll, you'll notice that the basidia spores and ascus spores will start to increase as well as platysporium. I helped a young man out. It, it's unbelievable how <laughs> I don't think you have heard about that. But visiting rights of a little kid from divorced parents was <laughs> was based on mold count in his or her house. <laughs> that yeah. I can't send my kid over there. It's over a thousand. <laughs> yeah, never heard that yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, you hear them all. That's rich. Peter, any questions for uh, Bill Beagle? Uh, not, not really. Um, I'm not that familiar with, you know, clean, I mean, I, I, I have seen, well, I, I, I certainly know cleaning methods for asbestos, which has to be, you know, nice and clean too. And some of the methodologies are very, very similar. And of course, with asbestos, well, you, you worry about the fibers, not infectious diseases, even though neither one of them is good. But no, I don't really have a direct uh, uh, question from it. And uh, the only thing, the only concern that I have, I uh, just was an expert witness for the United States government. And to date, I haven't gotten paid either. So, <laughs> so include me in your correspondence. <laughs> I, I copy you in. <laughs> well, well, Bill, do you have any questions for Herb? Do you have any contacts with the GSA, Herb? Pardon that? Any contacts with the GSA to get me paid? <laughs> no, I don't. No, I, I enjoyed listening. Pretty well. I enjoyed listening to uh, to your interview, and I at times caught myself nodding, going yes, yes, yes. So I I'm on board with with your with your line of thought, and I guess that's a good thing because you're the professional when it comes to what you do, and I typically will rely on someone of your expertise to to help us get through a a predicament or a, a remediation cleanup. Right. Okay, thank you. Well, if no one has any further questions, uh, we can... I, I may have another one. Oh, go ahead. Uh, it's, that's another thing that sometimes comes up, and it's not very often mentioned. And those are the statistical corrections for the CFU counts from viable uh, samples. Let's say the N6 sampler. Right. And, um, of course, if two pollens go through the same hole... They are virtually in the same spot. And let's even assume those are two spores from penicillium. In other words, mm -hmm. they grow all both at the same time. That will only will be later on visible only as one colony because yeah, you can't differentiate two colonies in, in that tiny little hole there. And there are correction tables, and I don't know whether they are typically used particularly when you know the count goes high in other words there are 400 holes now if you have 10 cfus on there the chances that you know two pollens landed at the same spot are pretty slim but if you have a count of 375 let's say that is the net count there's a good possibility that in some places two three or maybe even four uh, see, uh, 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 spores were deposited, and even though you only see one colony, do you correct for that typically? Uh, I think most of the laboratories don't use a correct. That's what I thought. Yes, it's, it's a, there's no standards in the United States yeah. for uh, these CFU levels. So why would you bother with correction yeah. when there's not a standard? Yeah, yeah, it, it uh, still it, it really still bothers matter. me. Yeah. Well, I I don't think it's a much concern. 
you know, we, we're in a nebulous science here, and uh, with no standards and no guide, well, few guidelines to follow. I, I really don't think it has much meaning. Well, certainly, uh, yeah. This is, aerosols, in a sense, do they cause most disease in hospitals? Yeah. There's some theories out there and a paper out there that aspergillosis is not a bioaerosol for the immunocompromised patient. It's in the water. Huh. So there it's, again, similar to Legionnaires. It's an yep. aspiration uh, uh, from the upper respiratory tract rather than from a bioaerosol, per huh. se. Interesting. Uh, this is something new. It's coming out. I think there's only one paper published by mycologist now. I think he's the University of Arkansas. <clears throat> and yeah, I mean, uh, uh, they the ba- those bacteria are pretty common and inhaled, typically by many people during a normal day in Pittsburgh or Los Angeles. But I guess a normal body can fight it off quite easily, right? Right. Yeah. yeah unless you get into very high concentrations, yeah, ob- like obviously a, a compost pile, where yeah. you get an allergic reaction to the mold. Yeah not true disease. I must make amends to Bill Beagle uh, before I cut off his interview before. I forgot to ask him two things. Number one, Bill, was there anything that you wanted to add? Were there any questions that we missed in the interview or any points that you wanted to make? I forgot to ask you that. Well, uh, nothing in particular. I do want to thank uh, Bill, uh, who's sitting in on the panel today. I took uh, your unsmoked class many, many years ago. And since you were out, Bill and Gary led it. So we'll give uh, Bill and Gary part of the credit for me winning this award. Well, thank you very much. How can people contact your your firm, Bill? Uh, there are two ways. Uh, 888-BEAGLE, B-E-G-A-L-44. Or uh, my email address is B-B-E-G-A-L at B-E-G-A-L dot N-E-T. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, to all our, our guests, and thanks to our sponsors. Uh, those sponsors, again, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for the drying, water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions. That's dry-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. That's at J-O-N-D-O-N.com. And the Restoration Forum at RestorationForum.com. And, of course, Microban Systems, the microbial management company at Microban.com. This is Cliff Slotnick saying thank you to Technical Director Dr. Dietrich Weil, today's co-host Bill Wagon, and to cyber jockey Zach Slotnick. But most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners, please come back and join us next Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.